I'm curious, have you, have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt utterly overwhelmed? Just, just one of those moments when you feel like that, that you're, you're not going to make it out of the situation unless God shows up big time. Like any figment of your imagination of control is gone. Any of you ever have that? I'm curious how many of you have experienced that kind of moment in your life. Let's see, raise, raise your hand. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, either you're just a hard-hearted snake that won't do what I say, or you're some kind of miracle worker. I don't know how you've lived life without these overwhelming moments. I, I've had a bazillion of them, and everyone I've talked to has had a bunch of them. Times where you just feel like, God, show up or I'm sunk. This is, I, I can't handle this. I, I'm, I'm curious how you respond when those moments happen. And, and I also believe there are probably many of you, literally hundreds of you, either in the room or watching online, where this is your story right now. You are here listening to this sermon, and you are overwhelmed in what's going on in your life. Maybe, maybe you're facing some kind of really tough decision, and you got no clue what decision to make, and you feel like everything hangs in the balance of making a good decision right now, and you're overwhelmed by it. There are some of you right now, you're watching online, and the reason you're watching online is because you're so sick, you couldn't come to be with the gathering of the church, and it's just, it's overwhelming. You don't know what's going to happen on the other end of this. Or maybe you have a loved one who's sick, and they're, they're doing terrible, and right now your heart's breaking because you, you want them to be well, and you're praying for them, and nothing seems to be happening. Maybe there's some of you, and you've lost a loved one recently, and the pain of getting up every single day is so, so arduous you can barely make it out of bed, and it doesn't seem like it's getting any easier. And you're going, God, I can't, I can't make it. I mean, there's some kind of financial crisis you're in right now where you know money's going to run out at the end of the month, and the month isn't that far away. Maybe some of you have a, a relationship struggle. You, your marriage is about to fall apart, and you know it. Or maybe you have an issue with one of your kids or your parents or somebody, a friendship, and it's just on the rocks, and you just feel overwhelmed by it. Or maybe it has nothing to do with it I've just spoken, but you got something and you brought it with you right now to this moment and you feel overwhelmed and you're wondering what's going to happen in your life. If that's you, I've got news for you. This sermon is specifically designed for you. God has a message for you today. He wants to speak to you. And what he wants to tell you is that you have just been given a unique opportunity to delight God himself through your faith. I know it doesn't feel like an opportunity, but what you're going through right now is an opportunity to delight God through your faith. If you know what Hebrews 11:6 6 says, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But let me tell you the reverse side of that. With faith, it is possible for mere human beings to delight the very heart of God himself. In fact, it's one of the chief characteristics of Jesus that I want us to dig in today. So if you've been, if you were here last week, we started this, this sermon series, Like Jesus, where we're looking at 12 characteristics of Jesus. And I'm going to want you to write them all down. If you didn't hear last week, go back and listen to it. I talked about how Jesus leveraged everything for eternity. This week, we're going to move on to the second characteristic you see in Jesus as you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. Remember, I taught you that these are four accounts of the same story, the, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from different perspectives, all on the same story. And these four stories, when you read them, you see characteristics of Jesus. And so the second one you see pertains to faith, and it's so supremely important. So I want you to write it down. I want you to, to memorize it, learn it. Here's what it is. Jesus celebrated the collision 
of humility and faith. Go ahead and write that down. Take a picture of it. Do whatever you need to do. Remember this one. This is so important. Jesus celebrated the collision, and I chose that word very specifically, the collision of humility and faith, because oftentimes those have to collide together inside of us, because they can almost feel oppositional, and I'll explain why in a moment. But Jesus celebrated it when he saw somebody, and they had humility and they had faith coming together in the same person. If you remember the sermon series, I told you that this is about aligning with Jesus, this whole Like Jesus sermon series. How do we celebrate what Jesus celebrated? How do we weep over what Jesus weeped over? So this is one of the very things that he celebrated when he saw humility and faith come together in a person. Probably the most definitive story of that in the entire New Testament is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, if you have it on the app on your phone, you brought your actual physical Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, find chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we're going to read a few verses. But before I read, let me go ahead and catch you up to the scene here. So at this point, by Matthew 8, Jesus has already called his 12 disciples to be with him. He's already cast out a few demons. He's already healed a few sick. He's already done some miracles. So they know he's a supernatural being. But in this moment, Jesus is about to meet the most remarkable man of faith he has ever met. And the crazy thing is we don't even know this guy's name. He's an unnamed Roman soldier. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. And I'm just going to read a little bit and pick apart the story as we go. Starting in verse 5. When he, talking about Jesus, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, I'm going to pause right there at the very beginning. There's some people you got to set up in the story. First of all, you got Jesus. Obviously, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. But then you got this centurion soldier. Now, a centurion, if you don't know how it worked back in Roman times, was an officer in the Roman occupational army. So the the kingdom of Rome was expansive. It was the largest world power back at the time of Jesus. And they had entered into a bunch of different territories, conquered them, and left an occupational army in those territories to keep control, to squelch any rebellions, to tax the people, to make sure Rome had power and money. And so this centurion was an occupational soldier under the kingdom of Rome. And he was a centurion, think of the word century, 100. He had 100 soldiers under his troop. So this was a highly respected soldier in the Roman army. Now let me tell you what we know historically about Roman soldiers. They were punks. They were cruel. They were mean. They, they treated their own soldiers like dogs, much less everybody else around them. They were known for extorting people, getting rich off the taxation of the people. They would ride in on their big steed and they would, if there was any kind of rebellion, they punished it quickly and swiftly with death. They, they, didn't, they didn't treat people lightly. These Jewish people hated these Roman occupational soldiers, and especially these centurions, these uppity people who were in charge of a hundred other soldiers, these, these officers in the Roman army. They, they were loathed and hated by the people, feared and revered by other Gentiles. And yet this particular centurion is very different than the story we know about most centurions. Now, you don't, you don't hear it in Matthew, so you actually have to flip over two books. So keep your place in Matthew. I want you to flip over past Mark into the Gospel of Luke. I want to be in chapter 7. I want to read verses 3 through 5 because I want you to see a little more description about this unusual centurion soldier. Verse 3, it says in Luke 7, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Okay, now now stop there. 
So, so three things I need to point out about this, this unusual centurion. Well, the first part in that unusual, he was really stinking rich. This centurion soldier had a lot of money, so much money that he could build his own house, provide for his own family, and still build an entire synagogue with his leftover money. So the guy was rolling in the dough. He was exceptionally rich, which wasn't that uncommon for centurions, because remember, they extorted from the people and they made themselves very wealthy. And they were given a lot of liberty to do so. But what was unusual about this particular centurion was the fact that he actually feared Yahweh God. He was a God-fearer. He says, they say, he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. So he used all his extra money not to go buy a boat, not to have a house in Italy. He used his extra money to buy a synagogue for his own city because he feared God. He loved God. This was exceptionally unusual for a Gentile soldier that had all this power to respect the God of that particular locale, which was Yahweh God. So this dude was an unusual centurion in that he had faith in the God of the Jews. But the third detail you learn about this, which again was exceptionally unusual for a centurion soldier, was that he was compassionate. Remember I told you most centurions were cruel, mean dogs, treated their own soldiers like dogs. But this guy was unusually compassionate. So in, in Luke 7, it talks about how he had his servant. And there's a Greek word that it uses for servant. It's the Greek word doulos. And that word means a slave. This is not like a maid or a butler in the house. This was a slave. And centurions were known for mistreating their slaves. If they treated their soldiers like dogs, they treated their slaves like fleas on those dogs. Expendable animals they could get just rid of. If they got sick, you just cast them outside to die. Unbelievably cruel accounts of how centurions treated their slaves. And yet if you go back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8, we read already, it says that he went to Jesus saying, my servant... My slave, he's lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. In other words, he is compassionate. He sees his, his servant when other centurions would just cast him out to die, and his heart breaks, and he goes, my, my, my servant is suffering. i got to do something about it, so much so that he runs to Jesus to find help. Unusually compassionate, God-fearing man. So for whatever reason, his characteristics caught the attention of Jesus, and Jesus decided he was going to do something about it. Listen to his response as we keep on in verse 7. It says, and he, again, talking about Jesus, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Okay, I'm going to stop there again. And I want to say, you just witnessed two remarkable things take place, but you might have missed it because it happened so quickly. What you just saw are the two most important characteristics to see the miraculous power of God in your life. The two things that you have to have if you want to see the miracles of God. Humility and faith sandwiched together. Two sides of the same coin found in the same person. You, you saw that. And I, got, I got to walk through each one of them because I believe if you miss what, what he did, you're going to miss the power that he saw. So the first thing is humility. So Jesus said, I'm going to come over to your house. I'll, I'll come heal your servant. And this centurion soldier says, no, 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 I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, the reason why he was saying that is because this centurion soldier, as a God-fearer, knew the Jewish culture, and he knew that if a Jew came under his roof, the roof of a Gentile home, he would immediately be defiled, according to the law of Moses. So he couldn't go under this centurion soldier's roof without being defiled. And so this centurion soldier, out of respect for Jesus, says, I'm not worthy to have you come defile yourself under my roof. But stop and think about it just for a moment. If anybody should have been worthy 
for a Jew to defile themselves for somebody else, it would be this God-fearing, powerful man who built the whole synagogue for the city. This guy should have been worth it. In fact, if you were to go over to Luke again and read the chapter 7 passage, what you would see is verbatim the Jewish elders say, he is worthy for you to go do this. So these Jewish elders go to Jesus and say, he is worthy for you to go defile yourself under his roof. He's that important to us. And if you put it in context, Jesus at this moment is only known as the son of a peasant Jewish carpenter. That's all he is. No one knows who he really is. And here you have this powerful centurion soldier who looks at Jesus and says, I'm not worthy to have you come. You, son of a peasant carpenter, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So as a side, when you see that humility, you ask the question, well, where does it come from? I mean, was this some kind of like false humility? Is he just being like, like pretending to be humble? Listen, Jesus never would have responded to him if he was pretending to be humble. He had genuine humility. To which you might ask, well, where did that humility come from? If he's so powerful, so rich, so, so, so strong and revered by others. The answer is simple. It came from him comparing himself to Jesus. When he compared himself to who he knew Jesus to be, he realized he was not worthy to have Jesus come under his, his roof. Now, it's interesting if you think about your own sense of worth. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but our sense of worth is derived from how we compare ourselves to other people. It, it's always been that way. If we compare ourselves to somebody who's pretty screwed up, is what we like to do, we feel a lot better about ourselves. And so we tend to do that. So I, I, love, I love playing basketball in my front yard with my kids. We, we've got a driveway with a basketball goal. And we, we like to play pig and horse and games like that. And I want you to know, I slaughter my kids most of the time. I, I, don't, I don't let them win. Uh, if they're going to beat me in horse, they're going to have to really beat me. My 11-year-old daughter will play, and I'll just slap the ball out of her hand. You know, I'm not going to let her win. I'm going to teach my kids to, to compete. So I, I dominate almost every time we play. I rarely even get a letter. And I, I look like a professional NBA player with my kids. I mean, I'm just whoosh, swishing it. You know, it's, it's pretty incredible. And my kids, I, I, that's why I like playing. They go like, Daddy, you're so athletic. I'm like, yeah, you know, I am pretty amazing. What, what can I say? My kids have a high regard for my basketball playing skills. And they would keep that high regard until I went on to the basketball court and King James came out, LeBron himself, and he and I played one-on-one. -on -one. Or he and I played pig. It would not go well. He'd be going whack, slapping the ball out of my hand each time. He'd be running circles around me. He'd be 500 to nothing. And my kids would look on and go, well, maybe he's not NBA quality after all. They would see the true me if I compared myself to greatness not to my kids, which my kids are great. Don't hear me wrong. Just they're still working on their jump shot. We do the same thing, though. When we compare ourselves, we like to find the axe murderer and go, yeah, man, compared to him, I'm pretty good. We want to feel better about ourselves, so we compare ourselves to people who are worse than us. But if we would ever stop and compare ourselves to Jesus himself, the fullness of God in bodily form, all of a sudden we, too, would say we are not worthy. Let me tell you why that matters, specifically when it comes to faith. Unless you have a proper perspective of how broken you are compared to Jesus, you might accidentally start making demands of Jesus. And let me tell you this, Jesus ain't nobody's genie. He is not at our beck and call. We don't get to tell him, do this, you're going to do this. When I pray, you're going to make this happen. You need humility enough to say, Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to be concerned about my needs. 
I'm not even worthy for you to come under this roof of my heart. I'm not even worthy for you to be concerned about what I'm going through right now. I'm not worthy. But I still believe you want to do something about it. So what I love about the centurion soldier is he didn't stop with just, I'm not worthy. He could have. By the way, he was, he was in the middle of a rock and a hard place in his situation. If you think about it, so here he is. He's a Gentile. He knows Jesus is a Jew. As a Jew, he knows he's not worthy to have Jesus come defile himself under his roof. But here's the rub. He knows his servant is so fragile that if he tries to pick him up and take him outside of Jesus, his servant is going to die. And so it's over. There's nothing to be done about it. And he could have just said, I'm not worthy. Jesus, don't even waste your time with me. Just, just forget it. It's impossible. This situation's over. But he doesn't do that. He lets his faith collide with his humility. And he says, I'm not worthy to have you come to my roof. But Jesus, don't worry about it. It's not a problem for you. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, listen, I, I know you don't understand the magnitude of that statement right there because I didn't understand it until I really dug into the passage and realized something. This is the first time in the entire Bible where you see a miracle done long distance. Up to this moment, every miracle done had been done up close. Even Jesus, now he's done a number of miracles. He's, he's healed the sick, but you know how he did it? He put his hand on the sick person, prayed over, and they were healed. He cast out demons. You know how he did it? He got up right up to them, touched them, cast out the demon. There was a leper. You know how he cast out the leprosy? He touched the leper, and the leper was healed. He was always right there doing the miracles. This followed suit from the Old Testament. You go back to the Old Testament and look at all the miracles that are done. How did Moses part the Red Sea? He stood right at the edge with his staff in his hand and put it down. He had to be right there for the waters to part. How did Elijah raise up the widow's son? Go read the story again. He had to lay on top of the dude. Like he's just on top of face to face, arms to arms, feet to feet. He is pressed against the guy as he prays over him three times. You had to be right there for a miracle to happen. The miracle worker had to have proximity. That was the whole paradigm, which is why the Jewish elders are saying, Jesus, you need to go defile yourself in his home because the only way, you've done miracles, Jesus, we know this, but you're going to have to be inside his home to do this miracle because there's no other way for it to happen. And then you have this centurion Gentile who sees the situation, says, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house, but Jesus, there ain't no problem for you. Those rules don't apply to you. You just say the word and my servant's going to be healed. This is incredible faith. This guy says, Jesus, there's nothing impossible for you. There are no limitations for you. You don't have to go to my house. You can do long-distance miracles. Just say the word, and he's going to be healed. And, and here's, here's what I love about it. He's setting a model for you and me. There are some of you here this morning, and you desperately need to see the miracles of God in your life. You need to see God move in power. And it's going to require this kind of faith. A kind of faith that says, Jesus, there is nothing impossible for you. To which you say back to me, well, where in the world do I get that kind of faith? Jason, I can't just fake it. I know faith isn't a fake it till you make it kind of endeavor. So, so where do I get that kind of faith? Well, you get it the same place the centurion got it from. By understanding the concept of authority. If you move to the next verse, you're going to see where this centurion got all his faith. He knew the authority Jesus had. Moving on. Verse 9. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he's talking about the authority that takes place in the military. 
Now, I, I want you to know, I, I, don't, uh, I didn't have much familiarity with military growing up until I married my wife, Virginia, and her dad is a retired colonel from the Air Force. The colonel's a pretty high-ranking officer in the Air Force. And there were times when they lived in certain bases where he was the highest-ranking officer. There were no generals. He was the highest-ranking officer on the entire base. Let me tell you what that meant. Anything Colonel Jack said went. He was the highest-ranking officer, so he'd go find a, a, a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, a lieutenant colonel, a major, a captain, somebody else, and he'd say, you go do this, and they would say, yes, sir, colonel, and they would go off and do it. He had full authority. They obeyed his rules because he was the highest-ranking officer until a general walked onto the base. And then a general will go up to my father-in-law, Colonel Jack, and say, Colonel, I need you to go do this. And he would say, yes, sir. And he would go off and do it because that general had authority over him. That's what the centurion is talking about right here. In the military, they understand the power of authority. When you speak, it gets done. Now, here's the most remarkable thing. When he tells this, he's saying, Jesus, I know who you really are. You're the five-star general over all of creation. You have total authority over everything. You don't need to be under my roof. You just say the word. Space and time obey you. Winds and wave obey you. Earth and sky obeys you. All of creation obeys you. Just say the word. You've got the authority. There's nothing impossible for you. Now listen, here's, here's why this is so profound. This is where your perspective is important. Jesus was a homeless guy who traveled around preaching to nobodies and the poor and the forgotten. And here's this Roman powerful soldier who, according to society, has got all the wealth, all the power, all the worth. And he says to this homeless guy who's the son of a peasant, you are the five-star general over all of creation. Whatever you says goes. That's faith. Let me tell you why that matters for you. If you want to see the power of God in your life, the miraculous power of God in your life, it's going to require the same faith. I want you to write this down. The power of God will be determined by the size of your view of Jesus. You, you, you memorize that. You, you tread over that over and over and over again. The power of God in your life will be determined by the size of your view of Jesus. If you view Jesus as huge, the power of God in your life is going to be huge. If you view Jesus as small and safe, the power of God in your life is going to be small. The size of your view of Jesus will determine the amount of power you see. I learned this 14 years ago in an unusual way. I learned it overseas on a mission trip to India. So I'd, I'd gone on a trip to see some church planning work done in India, and I was in the city of Hyderabad. And right outside, we went to a rural area. It was about an hour and a half or so outside of Hyderabad. We were visiting some churches that had been recently planted. And I went to this one church. It was a church of about 50 people. And this particular rural, rural area in India was a pretty large church. And I went to their worship service, and I was, I was called to preach that day to this church. And so we went over the team of about eight of us to this worship service, and I was amazed at this place, amazed by their faith. So it was a, a small little building, wasn't, wasn't huge, it, there was no like windows, it was kind of open air, it had a cinder block wall around the four sides with a doorway to come in and some open windows and, and a tin roof that was raised up a little bit higher, and that was it gravel ground and a lot of rocks and things on it and that was their church and there were about 50 of them gathered together in their beautiful Indian clothing worshiping God and when we had worship and the worship time lasted about an hour I don't have a word of what they were saying but I could feel their faith when they sang to the Lord I could feel their passion 
It was beautiful. And then after the time of worship, they had a time of testimonies. There were about four or five people who gave testimonies. Over and over again, we had translators letting us know what they were saying. They, had, they were telling stories of seeing the miracles of God like it was nothing. Yeah, we went to this village and there was this person who was suffering internal bleeding. We prayed over him and they were healed. This one person was, at, was acting psychotic and we realized it was a demon inside of them. We prayed over him and they were immediately healed. Over and over, healing, healing, healing. Like I said, like it was nothing. Like this is just normal Sunday morning conversation. And then I discovered right after that why that was. Because the next part of the service was prayer. And for 30 minutes, these 50 Indian believers got on their knees on that rocky, jagged soil and bowed down and prayed. And they prayed in this concert of prayer where you could hear them moaning and crying out and praying and praying. And, and I, I promise you, I had to literally get up five or six times just to rub my knees because they hurt so bad. But all those believers, man, they had calluses up and down their knees because they did not have to get up one time. The only reason they stopped is so I could go preach. And I walked up to go preach. And the only thing that could come out of my mouth was, I don't know why I'm here trying to preach to you. You need to be preaching to me. Because I knew immediately these guys had a faith that was light years ahead of mine. And, and I remember walking away from that church service thinking, like, why don't I see the power of God like these believers see? What is it that's stopping the power of God? And it hit me almost immediately as I thought it. It's because I don't view Jesus the way they view Jesus. I, I got to be honest, there, there, there are too many times when I view Jesus as my buddy I hang out with in the morning. There, there are too many times I view Jesus as somebody I study in a book. That's not how they view Jesus. They viewed Jesus as the supreme commander of the universe. And it didn't matter. They didn't have any money. It didn't matter. They had any political power. They had no resource. It didn't matter. They knew they had the supreme commander who was working on their behalf. So they expected miracles to take place. And I thought as I walked out of it, that's what it looks like. The power of God in our lives will be determined by the size of our view of Jesus. And the greater we see Jesus, the more we're going to see his power. That's what this centurion soldier had. He knew who Jesus really was. Didn't care if anybody else had it figured out or not. He knew who Jesus was. So he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And what I love about this story is not only does Jesus do what this guy asks, but it says that it actually wows him when he does it. Stop and think about this for a moment. This guy wows Jesus, shocks Jesus. I mean, how hard is it to shock the son of God? Doesn't he like know everything? And yet it says Jesus is shocked. He's like, I mean, how do you make Jesus go mouth agape? You do it by faith. Look at the next verse after this guy declares the statement of the authority of Jesus. You move on to verse 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while well, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, I have not seen faith in anywhere in all of Israel like this centurion soldier. Okay, I'm, I'm going to pause right there, because you probably just missed the slap that Jesus just gave everybody who was around him with that statement. Remember, who's the one who brought Jesus to the centurion? It was the Jewish elders, the cream of the crop, the most important of the nation of Israel, and he's the, they're the ones leading Jesus to the centurion, and, and Jesus sees the centurion soldier's faith, 
And he says, none of you guys got faith like this Gentile over here. I haven't seen any kind of faith like this guy. And that's a bad enough face slap, but you want to know the even worse face slap? Was he had 12 hand-picked disciples around him. His 12 apostles were with him, all of them sons of the nation of Israel. And he says, I haven't found among any of you faith like this Gentile soldier. Slap. Jesus was not mincing words. He was trying to teach him something. The power and prestige that comes with being in the kingdom of God is born from faith, not pedigree, not background, not nationality. Faith. When you believe Jesus can do anything, Jesus saw faith in the centurion soldier. And it said it shocked him. He marveled at it. You go back to verse 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. That word marvel in Greek is thaumatso. It means to be astonished, shocked in awe of this guy. He shocked the Son of God with his faith. With his faith. Now, let me tell you what's so interesting about this. That word thaumatso is actually used a lot in the New Testament but almost exclusively of how people responded to Jesus when he did miracles. In fact, if you were to go into later on in chapter 8, it says there's a time when there were winds and waves and they're in a boat and the disciples thought they were going to die. And Jesus stands up and he calms the winds and the waves. And listen, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, what it says. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? That word marveled, that's thaumatso. They marveled. They were astonished. At the winds and waves obey him to see who he was. They didn't yet recognize who Jesus was. They were astonished. This happened over and over again. He cast out a demon. They would be thaumatsoed, astonished. And they would marvel. They would be in awe. He would, he would heal the sick. He would walk on water. He would multiply food and they would be astonished. Wowed over and over and over again. There are only two times, though, when Jesus is ever astonished. Two times that the verb is used of Jesus. It's right here with the centurion soldier. And the other time is in a story you can find in Mark chapter 6 when he's in his hometown of Nazareth. And it says that he was astonished. He marveled at their unbelief. So let me tell you what that means. Jesus is astonished always by faith, the magnitude of it, or the lack of it. That's what makes Jesus marvel. So all of you who are in this room, especially those of you who are undergoing a test of faith right now. You are undergoing an overwhelming circumstance in your life. You, are, you have been given the opportunity to astonish Jesus Christ himself with your faith or your lack of faith. You've been given the opportunity to, to make Jesus marvel at how you respond with faith or lack of faith. But if you ever want to see the power of God, it comes from believing Jesus really can't handle anything going on in your life. I want to finish up with verse 13. L listen to what it says here. It says, And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. He says, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. According to the measure of your faith, let it be done. So let me tell you what that means. If you ever want to see the miracles of God in your life, it will be done according to your faith in who Jesus Christ is. You will not see the miracles of God until you place your faith. It is not God does the miracle and then you believe in him. It is you believe in him and then you see the miracles. 
That's what faith is. Now, I, I wish I didn't have to stop right now and, and make a little caveat to this, but I need to because I know the kind of environment we live in. Because there is a false gospel that goes around that says, listen, believe it, receive it, name it, claim it. It's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And I want to make sure you understand that is not what Jesus is talking about. That is not what I'm talking about. There is no, I get to tell Jesus what to do and he's got to do it if my faith is big enough. And there are too many people who say, well, if you're suffering, if you're sick, if you don't have money, if you're not successful, it's just because your faith is too small. If you had more faith and all that stuff would be yours. Let me tell you why that's not true. Because that's not humility and faith together. Remember, the two have to collide inside of a person. And humility says, I make no demands of Jesus. He's the supreme commander, not me. A soldier doesn't tell the five-star general what to do. The five-star general tells a soldier what to do. So we don't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you will do this, and I'm going to believe enough, and you're going to make this happen. Remember, Jesus ain't nobody's genie. He's not going to do what we tell him to do. We're going to do what he tells us to do. But at the same time, our humility collides with our faith, and we say, even so, I still believe, Jesus, you are a God of love. You are a God who cares about me. And though I'm not worthy, you are not limited by anything. So Jesus, I still bring my need before you and ask you to move. And I believe you can. Just say the word, Lord, and my circumstance will be changed. That's when faith and humility collide together. And that's when we begin to see the power of God. And here's the best part about it. It doesn't matter if Jesus does what you ask or not. You still get to delight Jesus himself just by your faith. Whether he answers or not, you delight Jesus because he is delighted when he sees humility and faith come together. We can please the very heart of God. And I think today, I think you need an opportunity to do that. I believe there are many of you who are here, and you need to see the miraculous power of God in your life. Maybe you need to change. You know you've been walking a pathway that's destructive, and you're ready to change your life. You need to see the miracles of God. Those miracles can be yours. Maybe there's a situation going on in your life right now that you need God to intervene. God is ready to do miracles according to our faith in Jesus Christ. Now remember, we don't tell God what to do, but we trust him with everything. But it requires humility and faith. And so in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond in humility and faith. I'm going to invite you. Now don't, don't get ready. This sermon ain't over yet. Don't get ready to move. But I'm going to invite you later to come down to the steps of this altar. These steps now are going to be an altar before Almighty God, before Jesus himself. And you may want to come and in humility bow down at these steps because you're bowing down before the king. And you're saying, I'm, I'm not worthy to even stand in your presence, but I bow down before you. But at the same time, my faith collides with my humility. And I say, even though I'm not worthy, I still bring my case before you, Jesus, because I know you've got the power to do something about it. And you may need to respond in faith. Now, there are also going to be pastors who are up front who are going to be ready to pray with you because the Bible also tells us to join our faith with other believers. When two or three agree upon anything on earth, it's done in heaven, and we're going to have a chance to agree together. So if you need to be prayed over, there are going to be pastors around the room who will pray for you. If you're watching online and you need to be prayed over, you too can have a time of prayer. You just text the word prayer to 94253, and then you let us know what your prayer request is, and we're going to pray for you and join our faith with you. But you're going to have an opportunity to respond, but it's going to require you to humble yourself enough to ask, to move. So I want to encourage you. The enemy's going to tell you, don't move. You don't need to do this. Not a big enough deal. And Jesus is saying, would you humble yourself? Would you remember I've got power? Would you present it before me? And you're going to be able to respond. 
But before we do that, though, there, there's one more thing I've got to say. This is so important. There are some of you in this room that the most important decision you can make is to let Jesus be not just the five-star general over creation, but the five-star general over your life, to take over your life. Because let me tell you what the gospel of Jesus says. The gospel of Jesus says, though he's the five-star general, we have mutinied against his rule. We've said, I don't want to follow your rule. I'm going to do my own thing over here. And we've rebelled against the general. And the consequences of that are punishment, eternal punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that we have a general who is willing to give up his own body and blood for the sake of mutinous soldiers. And if we would just trust in him and say, listen, I'm sorry for rebelling against you, Jesus. I'm sorry for trying to live my own way. I'm ready to do it your way. Take back control over my life. Be the Lord of my life. Then everything changes. And the spirit of this general comes inside of us and changes from the inside out. And get, we get redeemed back into his army. Listen, if you need to take that step of faith this morning, the pastors will be down front. We would love to pray with you and help you invite Christ to get forgiveness for your sins and a fresh start on life. If you're watching online, you can do it as well. You just go to fill.org slash next step and there's a way for you to fill that out and a pastor will reach out to you. But you need to respond. And I want to encourage you to respond today. So as, as you think through the scriptures and you go into what we just read in verses 11 and 12, this should shock you awake. It says, there are going to be people who come from the east and the west to recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into utter darkness where there will be gnashing of teeth, eternal suffering. Let me tell you what Jesus was saying. He was saying, all you Jewish people out there who think just because you're a Jew, just because you're religious, just because you grew up in the faith, you think you're going to be at the king's table because of your pedigree. And Jesus says, you're not going to be. People are going to come, Gentiles from the east and the west, and they're going to sit at the great table because they believe in who Jesus Christ is. I'll tell you why that matters for you. There are some of you in here, and you falsely believe because you were born into a Christian family, because you like Jesus, because you've read the Bible before, because you go to church from time to time, that you're going to have a seat at the great banquet table. I hear this all the time, and I know people don't mean it to be off, but it pains me every time I hear it because I know it's showing a broken theology. People say, I've been a Christian all my life. You haven't been a Christian all your life. You've been a rebel all your life. If you grew up in a Christian home, that does not make you a Christian. Repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus makes you a Christian. Growing up in a Christian home is great because you get exposure to the gospel. But we all rebel against the rule of Jesus. And we all have to come back in faith and say, heal me, Jesus. And there may be some of you who've been depending upon your pedigree, depending on your Christian background, depending on your attendance at a church. And today's the day where you go, I'm not going to depend upon that stuff anymore. I want a seat at the kingdom. And I know that only comes with me humbling myself before Jesus and by faith receiving his lordship, his kingship in my life. And I'm ready for that today. If you need that, today's the chance to respond. I want to encourage you to stand up to your feet, if you will. I'm going to invite the pastors to come down to the front and to spread out, and if their spouses will come as well, to be ready for prayer. And here's what I want to ask you to do. Again, I'm going to say this. There are aspects of you right now your, your feet are going to start to feel like cement and you're not going to want to come forward. But there are some of you who need to humble yourself, make the steps your altar, bow down, and you need to humble yourself and say, by faith, 
I present this to you, Jesus. I believe you can handle this circumstance. You've got the power. Or maybe you need to come to one of us pastors and say, please join your faith with mine. Here's my situation. Would you pray over me? We would love to pray for you. Or maybe you're saying, I, I need to make sure that I've humbled myself before Jesus, the high king, and invited him to forgive me my sins and take over my life. I'm ready. We're ready to meet with you and pray with you. Online, however you need to respond, you can go to fill.org slash next step and you can respond. Let us know. But right now is the time to respond as we sing the song. When the song is over, I'll lead us as we take the Lord's Supper.